everybody. Welcome to episode 167 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and it's been a long road to get to this point, but this is my penultimate episode covering season one of Superboy, the Alexander Salkind produced uh, television show, which aired uh, on syndication from 1988 until 1992. I am covering uh, season episodes 23 and 24 of season one. Black Flamingo, and Hollywood. And as per the case uh, with this show, these episodes are a mixed bag. Uh, I really don't care for Black Flamingo as much, but Hollywood was an episode I found to be a lot of fun. And that's for the next uh, couple of segments. But before I get to any of those segments, I have feedback to address. Feedback here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 155. This was a Ruby Spears episode. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Although I don't think the stories this time were the best or strongest of the Ruby Spears series, I think I liked them a little bit better than you seem to. Bone Chill could have been better, I suppose, if the supernatural creatures gave Superman a bit more trouble. But it's always good, as you say, to see a mass of monsters, or robots, or just bad guys, gang up and swarm at him. I will offer one piece of information for you, which you seemed almost to have at the tip of your tongue. The peril to Perry White with the swinging axe was a reference to the Edgar Allan Poe story, the Pit and the Pendulum, at which point you even said the axe was swinging like a pendulum. In talking about the driver's license, you asked, why do I care about Clark getting his driver's license? It's a pretty big deal in the life of most teenagers, almost a rite of passage to get their driver's license, especially for kids like Clark in a rural farm community. Most things in the Smallville area outside of town center would likely be too far apart to easily or quickly walk to, and uh, as in the following episode, he couldn't very well pick up Lana for their first date by walking to her house. The beast beneath these streets led you to wonder how in the 1800s the people of Metropolis paved over the streets. This sort of thing happened here in the U.S. in the late 1800s and early 1900s, when cities when cities needed to raise the levels of their streets, usually for issues of water flow. Seattle started that process in the 1890s, and Seattle Underground is a popular tour in Seattle. In the 1850s, Chicago embarked on a similar project that took place over the course of about 50 years. In order to improve the sewer system, after a cholera epidemic, many of the buildings had to be jacked up to allow wastewater to flow in the proper direction, leading to streets that were a full story higher than they had been. Finally, First Date is a kind of cute story, and it's fun to see a little bit of teen love between Clark and Lana, and Clark's nervousness. Lana doesn't seem at all to be nervous, so maybe it's Clark's first date, but not Lana's. I think I will miss the Superman Family Album stories at least a little once you finish this series. Live long and prosper, Dave. All right, as always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. Uh, regarding Dave's comments regarding the bone chill story. Yeah, Dave, it kind of was at the uh, tip of my tongue, the pit and the pendulum, the Edgar Allan Poe story. I think I even mentioned this in the episode that I am not as well versed in Edgar Allan Poe beyond the, uh, the Raven, the Telltale Heart and the Cask of Amontillado. So that is probably why I uh, missed the uh, reference for the, uh, Edgar Allan Poe story, the pit and the pendulum. But it definitely fits now, uh, now that you've reminded me for uh, for that. So for that, Dave, I thank you. As far as uh, the driver's license, uh, the uh, family album story on the same episode, uh, I asked why do I care about Clark getting his driver's license? Yeah, I know it's a pretty big deal in the life of most teenagers. It was a big deal for mine. I went to high school in a small town. So, yeah, I uh, from seventh grade on, I lived uh, where I live now. And, uh, yeah, you, di you didn't see anybody uh, pretty much all summer, at least uh, – in my family, we didn't. I mean, this was a well before Facebook and uh, 
Twitter and MySpace and FaceChat and this time and that time and who'd you call that time? You know, before, you know, you can basically communicate anybody at the touch of a touchscreen. So, yeah, I do understand that uh, getting a driver's license is the uh, the milestone for any teenager. But why do I care about Clark getting it? That's what I wanted to know. I mean, oh, good. I get to see, you know, Clark cheat on his road test. You know, I don't know. Just the way some of these play out does not appeal to me. I mean, I get the milestone aspect of Clark getting his driver's license. But I think it's just kind of the way he goes about uh, getting it. You know, and it's a problem with the first date episode, too. It's just the amount of disasters that Clark would have run into while he was taking his road test that he could not have averted without superpowers. Just it's a bridge too far. And that's basically my biggest issue with the episode. Just the amount of crap that almost happened. He uh, he had to swing out of the way of the I think it was a kid in the street or something that he was able to use his super reflexes for. He had a look through a building to see an oncoming car that would have hit him if he had he gone. You know, if a regular kid took this road test at this time, he'd have been screwed. But fortunately, uh, just because Clark happened to be behind the wheel of the car, there was all this other nonsense for him to avoid. And as far as the beast beneath, beneath these streets, uh, thank you, Dave, for informing me about some of these uh, projects that were done. I did not uh, know about them. And uh, Dave uh, put uh, some links in the uh, in his letter here. And if I remember to put them in the show notes, I will. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be uh, reading up on some of those because some of these projects sound uh, fascinating to uh, to read about at the, at the very least. So I will definitely be checking them out. And if I remember to put them in the show notes, I will. I encourage you to check them out, too, if you are uh, so inclined to do so. All right. First date. Yes, the teen love between Clark and Lana is fun, as is Clark's nervousness. But again, it's the stuff that goes wrong in the space of a four-minute story that it's first it's the truck then it's i don't even remember but it was first it was the truck then it was the where were the tickets and then where was this where was that the band get and then they get to the concert and the band is caught in a in truck trouble or car trouble whatever it was it's just the amount of hoops just from one to the other with no real rhyme or reason is what takes me out of these stories and we saw it again in the graduation episode uh, after this it's like all the stuff that just happens to happen in a short period of time just, I don't know, like I said, it just takes me out of the story. And Dave points out that he thinks he's going to miss the Superman family album stories once I finish. I really enjoyed, as far as the Superman family album stories was, I really enjoyed the first ones when Clark was a baby. Some of these ones when he's older, I'm not having as much fun with them. But the two Super Baby ones, um, the adoption and the supermarket, were both great fun. I don't really care for the interpretation of Clark when he gets a little bit older. So that's all I've got on that. Thank you, Dave, for writing in. If uh, you want to write in and uh, join in on the conversation, manscreen at gmail.com. Right now, I'm going to take a quick break and play a podcast promo. And when I come back, episode 23 of season one, Black Flamingo. Hang around, folks. Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. The new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detective's greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The Saga of Ra's al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman versus the Man-Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface 3 and the Ventriloquist. 
plus more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novick. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No, what? Just messing with you. Wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start things off with Black Flamingo. This was episode 23 of season one. Original broadcast date was May 6th, 1989. It was directed by Chuck Martinez, written by Carrie Bates and Berta Dominguez D. Guest cast included Fernando Allende as the club owner, Sam Basso as the bartender, Kevin Burr as the evil punk rocker, Scott Gallen as the bouncer, Herbert Hofer as Agar, Ron Knight as Senator Roker, Ada Maris as Natasha, Remy Palacios as the punk, Reggie Pierre as the punk, and Ron Russell as the bouncer. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. A political candidate is the target of assassination thwarted by Clark, who was there covering a rally for the man. The attempted killer is a punked-out teenager listening to a strange voice through the headphones. Via a pendant the kid carried, Superboy locates a club whose logo matches the pendant and infiltrates it disguised as a motorcycle-riding tough guy. Not long into his arrival, Superboy witnesses the brainwashing technique, which causes all the clubgoers to take orders from the terrorist who runs the club. Heading upstairs to the owner's private office, Superboy confronts the man, then uses his order for the kids to kill the hero against him by shielding himself with the bad guy, telling them, You programmed them to mindlessly obey. They'll kill you to get to me. There's only one way you can save yourself. Stop you! Stop you! Stop! Superboy is not your enemy. There is no family. I'm not your guy. Your mind belongs to you. Holy to you. Alright, so this episode is going to cover some other uh Worn well ground, uh, another one, uh, terrorists uh, using hypnosis and uh, mind control to control people against their will is probably one of the oldest storylines out there. And this show is going to try to do it in 22 minutes, so let's see how they do. The episode starts off with a sniper, and he's listening to some kind of Walkman. First, I wasn't sure if it was feeding him some kind of information or motivation, but the episode is going to show us down the line that this is how the hypnosis is being delivered into his brain. He's got the ear... Well, I don't know if there were earbuds back in 1989, but he's got headphones on. But he is listening to it, and you can see the little logo, the pendant logo on the uh, device after he's caught. So basically, uh, what happens is he chambers the bullet, and Clark hears it. So I got the good old uh, super hearing uh, paying dividends for our hero. And I always enjoy when Clark has to act without changing, and uh, this time he just kind of... Uh, fakes an act of clumsiness and pushes the candidate out of the way. He goes down to the ground and uh, the bullet is uh, fired. Clark takes an opportunity to uh, run away and he catches the uh, would-be assassin who is basically reduced to a laughing heap on the ground. And now Superboy finds all the clues. He found the badge on the coat. 
and the Walkman icon is uh, the logo for the uh, club in the next scene, which kind of looks like the redressed outside of Bonkers from Stand Up and Get Knocked Down. I couldn't uh, confirm nor disprove that they were the same place, but in the end, it doesn't matter. I am not a location scout, but I imagine if they used the place once, it wouldn't be very difficult to use it again, I guess. And this is a different kind of place, so you wouldn't uh, necessarily want it to be bonkers again. But it just looks like instead of a comedy club, this is some kind of punk rock club. And uh, here you have Lana with her very uh, frizzy 80s punk rock hair. And uh, TJ's hair is blue. And it's uh, gelled down. It almost looks like a helmet. I actually couldn't tell it was blue from the copy that I saw. But uh, it looked more like it was almost grayish to my eyes. So then they go in and... Here's a guy on a motorcycle riding into the club. No one looks surprised, and he has a very impressive-looking snake around his neck. And and obviously the owners don't like this guy at all. I mean, he, and he drove the motorcycle right into the club. And then the bouncer comes to kind of push him out of the way, and he gives him a good throw, and then he speaks. And again, I don't read the synopses before I watch the episode, and... I have not seen this episode before, and the minute this biker dude spoke, I was st- I started thinking. The wheel started turning in the head. That voice sounded an awful lot like John Hames Newton, and I spent a good deal of this episode trying to, I don't know about a good deal, maybe the next couple of minutes, trying to convince myself that it wasn't John Hames Newton un- with fake hair and a fake beard. Well, you know what? I really shouldn't have tried to convince myself that because... The show does confirm to us that this is Superboy in disguise with a very large snake. So when Lana notices our snake-wearing friend, you know, then the camera, you know, we get a little bit of a closer look of him, Adam. And then I started wondering even more, you know, between the throwing of the bouncer and everything. And I was starting to think that maybe this is him. The synopsis is, is already revealed that it is. But I'm just trying to take you through my thought process here. And uh, I like how Lana and TJ are on the cover here. Lana is uh, dancing so she can look around the club. And, you know, as she's doing that, they keep going back to uh, the bearded biker with the snake. And eventually I uh, convinced myself that it actually was uh, Superboy with a fake hair and a fake beard and uh, basically stopped arguing with myself. And basically that makes sense. He's there investigating uh, the pen that he found on the punk rocker at the uh, beginning. And it's especially clear if he... After he starts asking some questions, and uh, this Russian dancer tells him to go, that there are no good answers. You see, what initially threw me at the beginning was, I think the bouncer called him Slick, which, well, I don't know, in the uh, world of 80s uh, punk names, Slick is probably not outside the realm of possibility. So I thought maybe you know that was a nickname or something, but, but no, apparently they were just kind of calling him Slick as kind of a, you know, like a... A reference more so than a proper name, I guess. Slick was not actually his name. So as she's dancing around, uh, Lana does notice the disguised Superboy. I mean, and what I don't get about Clark's plan is uh, Clark or Superboy, whoever you want to call him. I keep her, I kept referring him to Clark in my notes, but this is really more uh, Superboy in disguise than Clark in disguise because he's not really doing much to hide the fact that he's Superboy. But he's undercover, but... He's not trying to hide. I mean, he marches, he comes in on that motorcycle like he owns the place with a giant python around his neck. You know, 
you do that, people are going to notice you. So I kind of wondering what he's trying to accomplish. You would think that if he wanted to go undercover, he would have tried to be a little more incognito. I mean, obviously, he can't show up in full Superboy costume, but you don't have to march in uh, driving a motorcycle through the door with a large snake around your neck. But the snake will come into play at the end of the episode, so uh, it is definitely uh, Chekhov's python. So uh, while she's dancing, someone hits on Lana, and this is when uh, Superboy shows up and chases him, and uh, he finds CJ's camera, and he wants them to leave. You know, he's basically telling them to go, but he doesn't tell them who he is. So he's hiding from everybody, even from his friends. So now, things are going to start to get interesting as we have uh, a strobe light, and this is how the people are being brainwashed into doing uh, the owner of the Black Flamingos being bidding. So everyone is kind of hypnotized, and uh, Clark sees the strobe as well. And while the strobe is going, there's a lot of focus on Superboy's eyes. You know, to the point where they kept showing his eyes so much, I was waiting for heat vision to, sh- to start emerging, but it never does. And I'm actually starting to wonder here if Superboy is actually getting hypnotized by this beam. So basically what's happening here is the club owner, whose name is escaping me at the moment, is showing a potential buyer how the brainwashing technique works. You know, makes sense. You have your your buyer right here in front of you. You want to show him him the goods, show him the merchandise. And this is not, I don't know if if we've had this plot line previously in an episode of this show that I've covered, but we're definitely going to see something similar again in, uh, Season two of Lois and Clark in the episode Target Jimmy Olsen, where uh, that's not hypnosis so much. That's uh, brainwashing through use of drugs. So meanwhile, while this is happening, uh, the show is still going a long way to uh, working real hard to convince us that Superboy is brainwashed, too. And the episode is not keeping me fully in growth at this point because I'm still kind of wondering where the snake is and what that's up to and how that's going to play into the situation. You don't send Superboy into a club with a giant python around his neck unless that snake is going to come into play somehow. So uh, that Russian uh, bartender or dancer who uh, Superboy was talking to earlier comes in and tries to kill the club owner. His uh, name, now I remember, is Dane. And she is a Russian spy trying to take this guy out. Maybe uh, she wants to stop him from selling his technology to her government or her government enemies. I mean, we're at the very tail end of the Cold War. There's only a couple more years left before the Soviet Union collapses. And uh, there are still some spy games at this point, I believe, going on between the U.S. and the old Soviet Union. But apparently, Dane can also brainwash people with a little device on his neck. And one thing I must say about this episode, where there have been other episodes where I've kind of watched the, the timer bar, this episode is pretty much flying through. And there's not a whole lot to say. It's just... The plot line just moves along like a freight train. Just uh, no room for B-plots here. The, this one story just keeps going. And uh, we do realize that at some point, Superboy actually is hypnotized by the Black Flamingo. But eventually, he kind of starts shaking his head and uh, pulls his glasses off. And eventually, uh, the beam stops. The brainwashing is over. And everyone is back to dancing as though nothing happened. I guess hypnosis is pointless if people remember it. So what we're learning here is that... Uh, Dane's plan here is basically to sell this device of his, which apparently comes an extra large and portable. There's also a piece which you can uh, put a little tab on your neck and it. You can broadcast your hypnosis uh, that way. So eventually uh, Superboy just kind of shows up in Dane's office. And again, he shows up as the biker with the beard and the long hair. I 
don't, I'm not sure why. I mean, this is his confrontation with the villain of the episode. I'm not sure why he doesn't just enter the room in costume. I mean, there's really nothing physical that Dane can do to him. But we do eventually get a dramatic reveal of what we already knew. Eventually, he kind of does a shirt rip type thing and uh, into costume from his biker gear. But who is that reveal for? You know, I mean, granted, every time we see a shirt rip, we know it. He, it's no surprise because we know he's Superboy. But I guess they're, they're making a similar justification here. But I don't know. I just feel like this transformation would be a lot more meaningful if we if it wasn't painfully obvious to us that this was Superboy under the biker gear. So now uh, Dana uses his hypnosis to turn the crowd on Superboy. And uh, this must be quite the dilemma for him because the crowd can't hurt him. But since they're human and can't really, he has to make sure he doesn't hurt them. So basically what he does is, which, you know, I guess uh, with him being a young Superman, you know, they call him, he's Superboy in this episode, but I really conflate him more to a young Superman. But he basically tells, reminds Dane, they will kill you to get to me. Whether or not he's really willing to sacrifice Dane to that point, I don't know. But Superboy convinces Dane that he's willing to use him as a shield. And you know what? That scares Dane enough to turn off the hypnosis and basically save his own ass and go to prison. Basically, Dane tells uh, his subjects that their minds belong only to themselves as he turns off the hypnosis. I mean, he probably could have said, you know, just I release you from my suggestion or something like that and been done with it. But I wonder if by telling his subjects here that their minds belong only to them, maybe does that give them stronger willpower? Does he have almost hypnotized them to having stronger willpower for themselves? I don't know. Again, these are questions that are not followed up on. So I'm not really expecting an answer, but it's just kind of something that ran through my brain as uh, this episode kind of comes to a close. And uh, we also learn here that Superboy speaks Russian, and apparently the snake's purpose was to catch everything on tape, because Superboy shows a little uh, mini mini cassette that recorded everything. Now, here's something else I don't understand. Why doesn't Superboy just bring the snake back to wherever he got it from? Why does he give it to Lana and TJ to bring back and harass Clark with? I mean, granted, it's for the sake of a joke, but I don't know. You would think the snake came in with Superboy, the snake would leave with Superboy, but I guess it doesn't. And uh, TJ makes a comment to Lana about how the biker just disappeared. But didn't they realize that the biker was Superboy? I mean, the Russian spy basically said that right in front of them. I mean, sometimes these characters can be really dense. I mean, if Lana could have just paid attention a little bit more to what was in front of her, she would have realized that that was Superboy in front of her in the biker gear. And at one point, I thought he was going to tell her, you know, hey, it's me. But he didn't. I guess it would be really embarrassing if he said that and she said, oh, Clark. Well, that would have definitely made his life a little bit more difficult. So, not bad. There have been worse episodes of this show, especially in the first 13. This uh, second uh, third batch of 13 episodes is a little bit better. And seeing Superboy or Superman, for that matter, is undercover is something you don't see every day. Usually Batman is the master of disguise. So, to see Superboy do it can be kind of entertaining, and it definitely was here. So, that's that. That's all I've got on that episode. So I'm going to take another break and play another promo. Then I'm going to come back with Hollywood. Hang around, folks. Did you leave the car running, Andy? I did. I'm not sure why, but I did. It, it, it's important. Like getting these comics from Ryan and Chris's Nightcast offices. Why are we getting these comics from Ryan and Chris? 
So, since Nightcast isn't covering what they originally set out to cover, I thought it would be fun to talk about the Jim Starlin run of Batman. So, we're getting the comics from them to do that. And, and they know that we're doing this? What? That we're covering Batman issues 414 to 430? Yeah, totally. I, I checked in with them and everything. So, you got permission to get these comics, which includes the storylines Ten Knights of the Beast, The Cult, and The Death in the Family. I totally told them we were covering these books, yes. And we're starting these episodes in May. That is, if you actually edit them on time. Yeah, Andy. The The series starts in May and can be found on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Busting my balls and everything. All right, right. Let, let's, let's hurry up. There are listeners that want to hear this, and I have to get back to Atlanta in 28 hours when I get my flight home. Oh, no problem. I got the comics right here. What's going on here? Andy? Mike? What are you doing here? Why do you have our comics? Say, Mike. Yes, Andy. We didn't get permission to take these comics, did we? No, Andy. And when you told me to get the box out of the car, you were really picking the lock to get in here? Yes, Andy. So what do we do now? Well, uh, we could try to talk our way out of this, but when I tell you to run, run! The Overlooked Dark Knight covers the Jim Starlin Batman run, a multi-part series of episodes beginning in May of 2020. From the grisly dumpster killings, to a death in the family, and everything in between. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network, located at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The show is also available on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and Spotify. I'm gonna barbecue your ass in molasses! Alright, welcome back folks. We're gonna finish this episode off with Hollywood. Episode 24 of Season 1. Original broadcast date was May 13th, 1989. It was directed by David Nutter and written by Fred Friedberger. Guest cast included Fred Buck as Percy Stoddard, Frank Cipolla as the paperboy, Bill Cordell as the assistant director, Arnie Cox as the husband, R. Emmett Fitzsimmons as the truck driver, Steve Gang as Gus, Doug McClure as Professor John Zugar, Jeff Moldovan as the hood, Gail O'Grady as Victoria Latour, Nick Stannard as Willis, Gene Tate as the lawyer, Sandra Von Johnson as the secretary from 1989, and Michael Walters as another hood. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Professor Zugar has a failing experiment causing blackouts across the city. Superboy investigates and the professor asks for his help in getting enough power to get it going. Superboy, you're like an answer to a prayer. Do you know how many accidents you're causing? Oh, believe me, that's the last thing I wanted to do. Zugar. Professor John Zugar. Now, this experiment I've been working on was somewhat out of control. We'll control it, okay? Oh, I will, with your help. This grid is what's causing the trouble. If I could raise the energy level, the power damage would correct itself. 
Well, put it bluntly, Superboy, if you could use your heat vision and concentrate on that grid, my experiment would prove out and... Excuse me. Hmm? Would you mind telling me the nature of your experiment, please? As fantastic, as far-sighted, as extraordinary as those of the brilliant visionary Percy Stoddard, a prophet before his time. He, too, was denied membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Oh, but Superboy, I'm wasting your time. Please, use your superheat and concentrate on this grid. If not, I cannot be sure there won't be a massive explosion. Superboy uses his seat vision to manage to get what we now see to be a time machine working into Paris and back in time to 1939. Clark is walking on the streets of the 1930s Hollywood where he intervenes in a woman being mugged. The woman turns out to be a famous actress called Victoria Latour, and the two build up a rapport, and Clark explains that he's from Schuster University. Thank you. No problem. I'm Victoria Latour. I've been researching my new role. What are you playing, a Green Beret? I'm playing a downtrodden victim of the Depression. Why would I play a hat? You don't know who I am, do you? I sure do. You're someone I want by my side if I'm ever in a jam. I'm Victoria Latour, famous movie star. That doesn't mean anything to you? I didn't say that. I'm sorry if I offended you. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not offended. I'm, uh... <laughs> I'm amazed and impressed by your indifference. Uh, what's your name? Clark. Clark Kent. Clark Kent. Where are you from? I'm not from around here. I'm from the South. Schuster University? You, you saved me from God knows what. I, I want to do something for you. Are you an actor? <laughs> no. Uh. <laughs> Come on, every good-looking guy that comes to Hollywood wants to get in the movies. Come see me at Granite Studio tomorrow. I'll get you a screen test. Uh, that's what you want, isn't it? What I want is to find someone. But thanks anyway. Hey, let me help you find your friend. I know everyone in town, everyone knows me. They'd love to do me a favor. I've been doing that off and on for the longest time. They seem to uh, take a shine to each other. Superboy finds the professor who explains to him. Superboy! Ha! Something told me those sudden power surges meant you were around. What are you so mad about? I'm the one who should be teed off. You know how long I've been waiting for you? You planned the whole thing, didn't you? You tricked me into using superheat, and then you dragged me back to 1939. Well, sure I did. How else was I going to get your help? But I didn't force you to hang on the time machine. <laughs> That's your problem. I want to return. We have to work out a few problems first. Some of the heat shields were damaged in their way through time, but I practically got them all repaired. Great, so how much longer? What, two or three uh, hours? That's easy. However, I haven't come up with a solution to my other problem. A computer chip that does all our necessary calculations was pulverized in its transit through time. You realize, of course, in 1938, they were 10 years or so shy of conceptualizing computers. I'm conceptualizing punching a hole in the ground and shutting you up in it. You disappoint me. Where's your joie de vivre, your curiosity, your wonder? I got here in 1938. You didn't arrive until 1939. Aren't you impatient to know how that happened? No, not from you. I you don't were want... hanging on the time machine. You must have let go before I reached 1938. That's why you didn't travel back in time as far as I did. <laughs> oh, OK. Let me show you something. What do you guess this to be? 
A projection of possible space warps. <laughs> it's a real estate map of the San Fernando Valley. All property goes for $50 an acre now. In our time, $300,000 an acre. That's great. I don't care about real estate. Huh. Short-sighted, huh? Well, I own 10 acres there now, and it's all because I work like a dog at two different jobs so I get enough money to buy them. You're taking the easy way to line your pockets instead of devoting your energy into getting us back. Easy way? You try throwing 300 pounds of pizza dough towards the ceiling. I got tennis elbow on that job. And don't be so damn superior. You go and try and live on Social Security in 1989. Besides, I'm trying to solve the problem. I talk to the science departments of the universities, but they all turn their backs on me when I talk time machines. Please, how long to replace this chip? Well, I can only contact someone in the science community. Or if I can locate Percy Stoddard and his miracle calculator. That's one of his inventions. Now, I bet that could help us. I have a thought on that. I knew things would work out when you turned up. No. <laughs> now, do you have a place to stay tonight? Superboy helps him set it up and only has one hour until the trip back, so he heads back to Victoria to say goodbye. When he gets there, Victoria confronts him, saying, Hello again. I just came by to say thank you for everything. Um, Clark, I, uh, I did a little checking, and there's no shoes to university in all of Dixie, or anywhere in the country for that matter. No, not yet, there's not. So either you're a fraud, or there's something going on I don't understand. I'm not a fraud, Victoria. That's your explanation? It would take too long. I've got plenty of time. Sit right here. Sit. Don't move. We're going to have a long talk after this. <laughs> don't move. Let's run up, Warren. 25, take three. Meanwhile, the thugs that are stalking Victoria and want to kill her turn up on her movie set, with guns to kidnap her. Clark gets shot on the set and he takes a dive so he can turn into Superboy and fly to the rescue. A tussle ensues and the thugs fire on Superboy, but the bullets just bounce off. He takes out the thugs and rescues Victoria. As Clark, he says goodbye. Clark, I thought they shot you. I'm so glad to see you. I was so scared. There's no reason to be scared anymore. I'm not now that you're here. I have to go now. Clark, don't leave me. I wish I didn't have to. And they share a kiss. Superboy makes it back to the professor with seconds to spare, and they are transported back to their own time. Lana and TJ are waiting for Clark to help with their coverage of an, of an old actress that has died and left the university a large sum of money. Good morning, and you are? Lana Lang, and this is TJ White of the Schuster University Herald. We're here doing a story on Mrs. Zedinsky's bequest to the uh, Schuster Chair of Journalism. Ah, uh, yes. Weren't you supposed to be here with a Mr. Clark Kent? Yeah, hasn't he arrived yet? No. So what else is new? You know, we've had this assignment for three days. You think at least he'd show up here on time. The will will be read in a few moments up in the library. You may wait here for your friend if you like. Excuse me. Now, why would a woman that nobody at Schuster's actually ever even heard of leave the school two million dollars? Well, that's what we're here to find out. You know, I read somewhere that uh, this Mrs. Sadinsky used to be a Victoria Latour, 
old-time movie starlet back in the 30s? Oh, she sure was beautiful. TJ! Well, it's about time. TJ, it's great to see you guys. It's uh, good to see you too, Clark. We're ready for the reading of the will. Well, come on. All right. So before we get into this episode, I want to point out that my two favorite science fiction tropes are time travel and alternate universes. Not necessarily in that order, but they're, you know, pretty much right up there with each other. So this being a time travel episode, I'm almost predetermined to like this kind of episode. And I did find this episode to be a lot of fun, even though uh, Professor Zugar was a little uh, overdone, I thought. But let's uh, get into this. Uh, we start off with uh, what looks like a scientist. And basically, his equipment is causing uh, disruptions to the power grid all across the city. That's when Superboy shows up and points out that his experiment is causing a car accidents, probably because uh, the uh, disruption with the, from the power grid is uh, screwing around with the city's traffic lights. So Zugar here is very animated, and he's way too excited to see Superboy. And Superboy is questioning him. He's putting the screws to him pretty good, trying to find out what exactly the nature of this experiment is, but he doesn't answer. And he just tells Superboy to yeah, use his heat vision on that spot over there, and in the device's grid, and that'll solve all the problems. That'll stop draining the power from the city. But what happens is they disappear, and all of a sudden, we're all very confused, and uh, Superboy is in the past. And you can see the uh, colors are a little bit different in the past. I guess uh, they use a different filter, and it almost seems a little, a lot of oranges. I don't want to say it's sepia, because it's not, but, but the episode just seems to have a little bit of an orangish tint in the past. Where the present time is just kind of colored normally. But it looks like uh, we're here in what looks like the golden age of Hollywood. And everyone is at first. I don't know if I want to say they're disgusted by Superboy's costume. But they're kind of put off by it. He probably looks to them as though uh, he's uh, right out of the circus. But he uh, quickly uh, takes care of that by uh, finding some clothes to uh, put on. He even uh, finds some glasses. And between the very large uh, horn rim glasses and uh, the suit and hat, he really looks like... Uh, Christopher Reeve here. So this is when uh, we learned that it's September 1st, 1939, and this newsboy here with the uh, the button-up shirt, the bow tie, even the blonde, even the reddish hair and the freckles looks a lot like the classic uh, Jimmy Olsen, the way he's drawn in the comics. And using the newspaper to uh, see what the date is is something I probably saw for the first time with the Back to the Future film, and I guess it's pretty common now anytime uh, somebody needs to check a date or something, you, if they're traveling through time. Uh, I know you don't do it in the future, but you know. When you're in the past, the newspaper is a good way to uh, do that. And even then, a newspaper, even in 1989, newspapers were, you know, not dying off the way they are now. So here he is getting involved in a mugging or whatever's going on here. Being that he's in the past, he's not shy about throwing these guys around at a costume. I mean, nobody knows who Clark Kent is in 1939. So even though he's going to use his real name. But now that he knows he's in the past, uh, I kind of wonder what's the point of the glasses as his disguise. Except maybe for his own comfort. I mean... Maybe it's just kind of a psychological thing for him. He's in disguise, so he needs uh, kind of needs the glasses for himself. I mean, there's nothing in the episode that 
indicates that or disproves that. Just some random musing on my part. So he saves uh, this famous uh, 1930s actress that he never heard of. And then, you know, she's uh, pretty much has him on his back foot. You know, anytime uh, an attractive woman kind of bats her eyes at Clark, he kind of gets all uh, dry mouth and uh, stuttery. And uh, but, you know, you know, and he's kind of uh, resisting her charms a little bit. And uh, and she likes seems to like the fact that he's not uh, drooling over her. You know, apparently uh, this is Victoria Latour. She's uh, obviously a fictitious, famous movie star. For, and uh, I guess if you were living in this universe during that time, you'd know of her. But being that Clark is from 50 years in the future, he uh, doesn't know her. I don't know how famous she wound up being, but Clark's never heard of her. So I guess if you're that famous, seeing someone who doesn't recognize you can be kind of refreshing. I wouldn't know. I'm not that famous. So Victoria is happy to have had his help. And uh, for that, she offers to help him with whatever he needs, which includes finding his friend. Uh, Clark told her, doesn't tell her everything, but he told her he's looking for uh, Professor Zugar. So... Superboy finds Zugar, and of course, uh, something uh, is not working here. Basically, his uh, computer is broken, and there are no suitable replacement parts in 1939. And Superboy is pissed. I mean, he just lays into this poor uh, scientist who really kind of maneuvered Superboy into uh, this situation. He really didn't tell Superboy what he was working on. All he said when Superboy showed up, he said, here, use the heat vision there, and that'll stop the power grid. And uh, Superboy didn't really press him, and he was just more concerned with stopping the uh, power fluctuations. But one of the questions um, that I really didn't have, and maybe, you know, looking back, I probably should have had, Clark appeared in the 30s by himself. Apparently, Zugar showed up a year before, and there's some kind of uh, exposition about how Superboy let go of something sooner than Zugar did, and that's why he showed up in 1939, and while Zugar appeared in 1938, which... I imagine as a nod to the origin of Superman in 1938. I mean, it's a good thing, I guess. Uh, maybe Zugar let go as soon as Superboy did, because otherwise, you know, Zugar could have held that thing back all the way to the beginning of time. But one of the things Zugar's doing here, he he bought some cheap real estate, and he wants to cash in on it once he gets back to the present. How uh, Lex Luthor of him, a real estate scam, and he's using time travel to enrich himself. Doc Brown would not be happy. So Zugar is too animated, and I love. And he reaches to Superboy for a hug, who just, who just in his irritation, turns him down. Newton plays a very good, irritated Superboy. And uh, so now he goes back to Victoria because, you know, any, she mentioned to him, anything you need help with, I'll help you. And, uh, well, she's going to help him find Percy Stoddard, who is the inventor of the Miracle Calculator. So now we're back to uh, these three thugs here that were, who were trying to kidnap Victoria to be, or do whatever in the beginning of the episode. And... Uh, Victoria comes through on her promise to Clark. The calculator and Stoddard are delivered to Zugar's little uh, hut on the beach here. And for some reason, Zugar, who is really enjoying spending time with Percy Stoddard, is showing him future technology. Again, Doc Brown will be sad. And uh, <sighs> Superboy is all kinds of irritated with, with uh, Zugar to the point where he gives Stoddard the land that Zugar bought. He gives him the deeds, and uh, I, I guess that gives uh, Zugar his uh, comeuppance, because now he's the one who uh, is irritated. But apparently, um, they can't just go back home now because there's an hour to kill, because the episode needs us to uh, complete the uh, Victoria Latour plot. And uh, Superboy goes back to the lot, and uh, some assistant director of a film grabs him for a picture with some astronauts or some kind of movie. So now he's out of uniform and back to hitting on Victoria, who... 
Apparently, in however long Clark was away, did some checking into him and found that there's no uh, Schuster University. I guess it hasn't been opened yet. There's uh, no uh, saying, oh, nobody knows exactly when Schuster University was founded, but apparently it has not been founded in 1939. So now we're on set, and I'm guessing something's going to happen here with those three uh, thugs, and uh, basically here it is, right here at the end here, the disco ball explodes, and uh, Clark fakes being killed so that now he doesn't have to explain what's going to happen to him, but it gives him an opportunity to chase Gat. So now Clark fakes being killed so he doesn't uh, give up this uh, secret identity that's irrelevant in 1939, even though he is kind of using his own name. But it gives him an opportunity to chase these guys as Superboy and solve this problem quickly. And he probably shouldn't be getting involved in this, as we don't know what Victoria's fate should have been. He is messing with the timeline. However, DC Comics time travel rules states that history cannot be changed no matter what you do. Anything you do in the past is what you were supposed to have done. So I seriously doubt anyway that there's all kinds and the writers of this episode knew that rule or for that matter cared. But he's in the past and he's doing this. So let's just go with that. And I like how Superboy is showing off. This is very uh, George Reeves, except he's not throwing bunches. These guys are just kind of bouncing off of him. You know, in a a first season of the Superman episode, George Reeves was just punching guys lights out. Superboy has offered to do that in a couple of episodes. Uh, the Judge Faust episode and uh, the Terror from the Blue episode are two that come to mind where Superboy really wanted to punch somebody into the next century, but he just kind of lets them bounce off and he, he, he'll throw a guy when uh, when the situation calls for it. And uh, it turns out that the boss uh, wanted no part of Superboy. I don't blame him. I wouldn't want any part of that either. And then after that's wrapped up, there's a quick cut back to Zugar and there's only a minute to go as uh, things are sparking around the uh, professor here. So Clark better get moving. Now, both Clark and uh, Victoria are both smitten with each other, but Clark has to leave. And so they say they tender goodbye and off he goes and Superboy arrives just in time and home they go. So we get back to the end and uh, we're at a will reading. And this is where we find out that Victoria left the university some money. You know, perhaps like I mentioned before, Clark was always meant to go back in time to uh, secure this. Star Trek would call it a predestination paradox. And there are pictures on the uh, shelf here of Victoria Latour with, I'm not sure if one of them was Superboy, but it was definitely Victoria and Clark. So, but could, but could you have imagined uh, Lana's surprise if she had seen those pictures? And uh, this shot, this scene here, the moment here where Clark is happy to see them and they're confused, it's kind of reminiscent of the ending of Back to the Future where Marty is excited to see Jennifer. It's been a week for him, but only about. 12, maybe 15 hours for her. So I do like that disconnect where you don't know how long Clark's been stuck in the past, maybe a day or two. But, you know, he did, you know, like Marty in Back to the Future, he was concerned that he might never get home. So to be to be home and to see his friends is a big deal for him, even if they don't have any idea what the hell's going on here. So that may not have been the best episode of the series, but it was definitely a lot of fun. Like I said, I will eat up time travel stories and alternate universe stories with a spoon. And that'll prove that when I get to cover in season three, where I will probably just gush over the road not taken and, and the road to hell two-parters. But this is a simple episode. Professor Zugar is too overdone, too animated. But you know what? I just had a good time watching this episode. And honestly, with the quality of some of these episodes, if I can say I had a good time watching it, that's enough. So next time, we'll finish season one with Succubus and Luthor Unleashed. Until next, until then, if you want to leave feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to 
Join the conversation over the Facebook group. Just put Mana Screen Podcast in the search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Mana Screencast. Till next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Mana Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright, they are original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.